This morning I'll be picking up in the book of Acts where Peter left off last week and we'll also be covering a good chunk of the Old Testament as well. Um, I've got quite a long passage to read so um, if you need to leave before the end of the service today I'll know, I'll know it's because you've got a joint in the oven. I won't take it personally. Um, but if you'd like to um, open your Bibles at Acts 6 verse 8. Acts 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stopped saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these things so? And Stephen replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our ancestor Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives, and go to the land that I will show you. Then he left the country of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After his father died, God had him move from there to this country in which you are now living. He did not give him any of it as a heritage, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as his possession and to his descendants after him, even though he had no child. And God spoke in these terms that his descendants would be resident aliens in a country belonging to others, who would enslave them and mistreat them during 400 years. But I will judge the nation they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, But God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and enabled him to win favour and to show wisdom when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout Egypt and Canaan and great suffering and our ancestors could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and invited his father Jacob and all his relatives to come to him, 75 in all. So Jacob went down to Egypt. He himself died there as well as our ancestors, and their bodies were brought back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time drew near for the fulfilment of the promise that God had made to Abraham, our people in Egypt increased and multiplied, 
until another king who had not known Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt craftily with our race and forced our ancestors to abandon their infants so that they would die. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful before God. For three months he was brought up in his father's house and and when he was abandoned, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his relatives, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his kinsfolk would understand that God through him was rescuing them, but they did not understand. The next day, he came to some of them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became a resident alien in the land of Midian. There he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he approached to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the mistreatment of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, I will send you to Egypt. It was this Moses whom they rejected when they said, Who made you a ruler and a judge? And whom God now sent as both ruler and liberator, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out, having performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet for you from your own people, as he raised me up. He is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and with our ancestors, and he received living oracles to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make gods for us who will lead the way for us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. At that time, they made a calf, offered a sacrifice to the idol, and reveled in the works of their hands. But God turned away from them and handed them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me the slain victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? No, you took along the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship. So I will remove you beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tent of testimony in the wilderness, as God directed when he spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors. And it was there until the time of David who found favour with God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. 
Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now have you and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You were the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man called Saul. When they were stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died and Saul approved of their killing him. So that's quite a long passage. I'm not going to attempt to uh, break it all down and preach through it all. Um, But I've um, just chosen a few bits which jumped out at me that I thought I might expand on. Um, And I want to start by looking at the first verse of this brief passage um, in the book of Acts. We heard Peter describe last week how the deacons were chosen and how they should be trusted now, that they should be good, righteous people, people above reproach. They must be sincere and not looking for dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience, and they must be tested. So a deacon isn't just a dog's body who makes the tea and coffee and puts the chairs out on a Sunday morning. It's a position of integrity, and actually it's a gift as well. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the gifts and calling of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Things like administration and helping are among them. They're gifts that God has given the church through the Holy Spirit for the common good. But there's a detail in today's passage that I'd never noticed before until I'd started preparing for today's sermon. Stephen was appointed a deacon. And as a deacon, he's going about helping people particularly the Greek-speaking widows. And I always used to wonder about those deacons. Were they thinking to themselves, oh, this is rubbish, why do I have to do this? I want to be out and about preaching like Peter. Or maybe, I want people to be healed by my shadow like the twelve apostles. Or how about, I want to prophesy like John. Or maybe not like John, he he gets a bit out of hand. But why do I have to be a boring deacon? But no, Stephen didn't have that attitude. And verse 8 tells tells us that Stephen was full of grace and power and did great wonders and signs among the people. He was a deacon. He was faithful in his duties. And he did great signs and wonders among the people. 
And maybe that's not something we'd ex- necessarily expect from the deacon role. Does anyone here want to do great signs and wonders among the people? Does anyone here want to be full of grace and power? Now, in some churches, this will be the point where I tell you there's a sheet at the back of the hall. And if you want to put the chairs out and help with the tea and coffee next week, write your name down on that list. I'm not going to do that today. But I will say this, whatever your gifting is, whatever your calling is, if you're not doing it, you can't expect to see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. 1 Corinthians is very clear. The gifts and calling of the Holy Spirit are for the benefit of the church, to build up the church. And that's the case, whatever your calling or gifting is. People with the gift of prophecy don't sit prophesying to themselves at home. That would be ridiculous. People with a gift of healing don't set themselves up just to heal themselves. That'd be absurd. And if you have the gift of helping or the gift of administration, you need to use it. Just like Stephen in our passage today. And maybe God will use you to do amazing things. Whatever your calling is, whatever gifts the Holy Spirit has blessed you with, use them at church. That's what they're for. And if you're not sure what your gifts and calling are, then pray. Talk to your home group leaders. Try a few things. But we should all know what our gifting and and calling are. Okay, back to Stephen. What happened next? Well, in summary, he was seized, falsely accused of blasphemy, and stoned to death. But who seized him and why? Well, as Peter explained last week, the deacons were chosen to serve the Hellenist widows and the Hellenists were Jews who were almost certainly not born in Israel but came from elsewhere. And the issue was that they didn't speak Aramaic, the language of Israel at that time. They spoke Greek. Now, it's not immediately obvious to us from the text, but the chosen deacons all had Greek names. They themselves were probably Hellenists as well who weren't originally from Israel. And if we look at verse 9, it seems to be other Hellenists who took exception to what Stephen was doing. It suggests they didn't like the signs and wonders, and they stood up and argued with Stephen. But they couldn't cope with Stephen's wisdom, or the Holy Spirit that empowered him. And they got men to speak against him, lie about him, accusing him of blasphemy. Why blasphemy, though? They could have accused him of anything. Well, first of all, in Old Testament law, it's quite easy to prove blasphemy. It's not like murder where you need a dead body and a weapon. Under Old Testament law, you just need a couple of witnesses. And that's why the commandment about bearing false witness is so important and included in the Ten Commandments that summarise the law. But the other thing about blasphemy is the penalty for blasphemy was death. So Stephen's arrested by his own people under trumped up charges of blasphemy and he's facing crime, facing death for a crime he's innocent of. Does that sound familiar at all? So what's his defence? Does he explain that he's innocent? Does he come up with an alibi? No, he actually attacks the people who are accusing him. They've accused him of teaching against Moses 
and God, of teaching against the temple and the law. And in the same way that the Old Testament prophets rebuked the leaders of Israel, Stephen tells the religious leaders that they are the ones who have abandoned abandoned their sacred responsibilities, just as their fathers did. And he spends a long time spelling out exactly how their fathers fell short. So those original 12 patriarchs, Jacob's sons, were jealous of Joseph, the brother, and sold him into slavery in Egypt. But God was with Joseph and showed him favour, so that years later, Joseph was able to rescue them from famine, bringing them into Egypt. As time went on, those descendants of the patriarchs fell into oppression and captivity in Egypt. But God called on Moses to deliver his people from captivity and led them into the land that God had promised Abraham. But all the way through those years, Israel was rebellious and disobedient. They were circumcised in body, but uncircumcised in heart and ears. Just think, they'd seen the ten plagues. After that, they'd seen God part the Red Sea to let them cross, and then close it again on the Egyptian army, who were chasing them. They'd seen God's miraculous provision in the wilderness. They'd seen many signs and wonders. But in spite of all that, they constantly grumbled against Moses. They complained about the food that God provided them, saying they preferred the cucumbers and garlic they'd enjoyed when they were in slavery. They were rude about Moses' wife. And what was the first thing they did when when Moses went up the mountain to get the law and commandments? They made themselves a golden calf to worship. There's a word for people like that. What is it, Esther? Idiots. But actually, it's, it's there in Scripture as, as an example for us because it's, you can see the most wonderful works of God in your life and still fall away from faith. And I know we've all seen it in people among us. And finally, as Stephen says, which of the prophets was not persecuted by their ancestors? Stephen tells his accusers that they're the ones who have blasphemed against God, just as their fathers did. They're the ones who rejected Moses, just as their fathers did. They are the ones who disregard the law and the temple, just as their fathers did. Their fathers killed the prophets who foretold the righteous one. They themselves had actually betrayed and murdered the righteous one. And not surprisingly, the religious leaders didn't like this this response. How do they react? Verse 54 tells us that they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. And why were they so angry? Because they realised that what he said was true and they had no argument against what he said. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was accused of blasphemy and was about to be stoned to death, I'm not sure I would use that sort of tactic. I would try using an alibi or point out some sort of inconsistency in the accuser's evidence but Stephen was led by the Holy Spirit in his words and in fact he was so filled with the spirit at the time that when he gazed into heaven he saw Jesus stood at the right hand of the glory of God and then he was murdered it's easy for us to read this and move on we live in a culture where that just wouldn't happen 
I'm sure you were all as shocked as I was on Friday when we heard the news of the mosque attacks in New Zealand. We might not be Muslims, but this was an attack on humanity and there's no place for it in the world, whatever the religion of the people who were killed. But there have been many similar attacks to this on Christian places of worship. Some of those attacks have been state-sanctioned. In many places in the world, Christians have to worship in secret for fear of violence or murder. In North Korea, Christians are routinely arrested, with many tortured and executed. In Somalia, people who are suspected of being Christians are killed on the spot. And many other countries in Africa won't tolerate Christianity either. Has anyone here been to the Maldives on holiday? Yeah. In the Maldives, owning a Bible is punishable by death. In communist Vietnam, church buildings are routinely destroyed by the state. And in India, things vary from state to state but Christian homes and buildings are frequently destroyed. Mur murders are not uncommon. Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, in many Middle Eastern countries, Christianity is oppressed. And we should pray for peace and comfort for those who've lost loved ones in New Zealand and that somehow, through all the pain, they might encounter Jesus in some way. But let's also pray for our oppressed brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. The people who are murdered every day for loving Jesus. The people who are in prison for their faith. People who have to meet in secret for fear of having their homes destroyed or worse. In 1 Corinthians, Paul describes the church as a body. And if one part of the body hurts, the whole body is in pain. So let's Let's always pray for our oppressed brothers and sisters around the world. So what was the purpose of all this, going back to Stephen? How, how was Stephen's unjust stoning? How did it further the kingdom in any way? Well, the passage ends with a brief mention of someone called Saul, who held the coats of those who did the stoning. And chapter 8, verse 1 tells us that Saul approved of their killing him. And at this point in the book of Acts, we know very little about Saul. But very soon, we'll hear about how he came to faith himself. Something about a road to Emmaus. <laughs> or, was, or was it Damascus? Um, we, we hear about how he was instrumental in spreading the gospel across the known world. And as we know, Saul who came to be called Paul, was a significant influence on our understanding of Christ, our understanding of the Holy Spirit and of the church. And I'm sure we'll hear plenty about that over the coming weeks as we work through the book of Acts. But for now, let's just turn quickly to Philippines chapter 3. Because in this passage, Paul compares who he is that now, since coming to faith in Christ, compared with who he was before. So I'm going to read Philippines chapter 3 from verse 3. For we, Christians, are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus 
and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. As you can see, that's quite a change in Paul. He considers all of his previous life rubbish for the worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. But where did Paul first hear about Christ? Who planted those first seeds that grew into something so fruitful, something we'll probably never see the like of again? Paul first heard about Christ from Stephen. And certainly Paul had his own encounter with Christ later on. And it's not for us to know exactly how much influence had on Paul, either before or after he came to faith. But I suggest those first seeds were planted there when Paul looked after the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. As I've already said, it's, it's fairly unlikely, unlikely that we'll get to speak about our faith just as we're about to be stoned to death. But sometimes we do talk about our faith and there's no obvious sign that we're getting anywhere or that the other person is even listening. But just as Stephen planted those seeds in Paul when he spoke about his faith, we might be planting seeds that God will water later. I came to faith about 15 years ago, just after Harriet was born. But many years before that, when I was a young teenager, I went to boys' brigade. And as part of that, I went to Sunday school. And I just went along because that's what my friends did. I'm sure I heard the gospel, but I don't recall hearing it. But seeds were planting there that God watered later on. The next time I remember hearing the gospel was in my 20s. When a Nigerian student came to me, came to my pharmacy to do a postgraduate training. And if you have an idea of what a stereotypical African Pentecostal Christian woman is like, she was just that big lady who always had a big smile on her face and she spoke about Jesus constantly. This was a few years before I came to faith and she drove me crazy. Every five minutes, praise the Lord, may the Lord bless you. I had to restrict her to 20 hallelujahs a day when she was at work. And I'm ashamed to say I ribbed her mercilessly, but she was planting seeds and possibly God was using her to water seeds that had been planted in me years before a boys brigade. Bowler was probably the first person I told when I did come to faith. I can't imagine how she must have felt when I told her. But when we share our faith, it has an effect on people. 
a lot of the time, they might not even be aware of it themselves. But when we share the truth of what we believe, it does something positive in people's lives. Even if their immediate reaction is rejection or even persecution. There's no indication that Stephen had any idea of the eventual impact of his words. And it's the same with us. I think it's probably unlikely that, you've, that you'll be sharing your faith with the next St. Paul. I think he was one of a kind. But you never know. You might be planting seeds for the next John Wesley or Billy Graham. Amen.